This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. There isn't much question that in the area of healthcare is one of the most important sectors to look for improvement in the years to come. Much of that has to deal with the relationship between the doctors, nurses, and hospitals and the patients themselves. But there seems to continue to be a little bit of a disconnect between the two. Dr. Andrea LaFountain is the CEO of Mindfield Solutions, which looks at the science of health behavior. And she is tackling this topic in her new book, How Patients Think, a science-based strategy for patient engagement and population health. Andrea, great to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Dan. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So why, in your mind, in this age of technology and big data, is there still that disconnect? Well, I think you you kind of answered the the question. In your question, big data, you know, it can be great, but it can also be an enemy, depending on how we use the data, Dan. I think there's an over-reliance on on typical what we call claims data. You know, we look at the activities of the patient. We can see, you know, whether they're visiting the doctor or filling prescriptions, but it doesn't give us the explanation behind the activities that we're seeing. And and that's what's missing, Dan. It does feel like, and tell me if I'm wrong, it's like the people that are reading all of this data you know, don't believe what they're reading. And they're like, no, there's no way that this could be. People's reactions are linked more towards their data, but that isn't always the case. Well, that's right. I mean, the the data can show us the result of their decision. It doesn't tell us why they're making the decision. So we can look at the data and we can say that 26% of women with breast cancer stop taking their treatment early. And we can see that very clearly in the data. But how, how are they making that decision? That is not available in the data. So we speculate and we, we kind of impose our reasons why we think that they're making that decision without actually getting into the scientific reasons behind why they're making those decisions. Dr. Andrea LaFountain joins us, CEO of Minefield Solutions. Her book is How Patients Think. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Is the problem with taking medication and taking it all the way to the end of the prescription, is that one of the biggest areas of concern where this problem kind of rears its head? Well, that's definitely a major problem. But for some diseases, good health outcomes require more than just taking medication. When you think of, for example, diabetes, we have to monitor diet and exercise as an integral component of that. And in fact, what we saw in in our research, we did research with over 1,000 type 2 patients with type 2 diabetes in the United States, And some people actually believe that they are managing their diabetes well just because they take their meds every day. Now, the fact that their diet is completely out of whack in in terms of being able to maintain good sugar levels and the fact that they're not exercising isn't on their radar in terms of good diabetes management. So so the the way that the, the classic diabetic patient looks at disease management, it's all about the logistics of the disease are not about the outcomes of the disease. Hmm. So if they take their meds and they do their finger pricks every morning and check their numbers, they're okay with that. And they can say, yes, I'm doing it well. I am engaged in managing my diabetes. 
but the fact that they're not able to control it for other reasons doesn't seem to be on their radar. You have a, a great statistic in the in the beginning of the book, and I wanted to bring it up and, and talk about it for a second. Uh, and for the people listening, understand this is going back a few years, 2008, so not that far back, but still, you know, uh, close to a decade. $2.2 billion spent on health care back in 2008. $1.2 billion wastage that could be eliminated. I mean, if... I think the majority of people, Andrea, understand that there is a level of waste within the healthcare system. But understanding that it is close to 50% or more than 50%, that will frustrate a, a lot of people out there more so than anything. And rightly so. And we do need to tackle that, Dan. And the wastage is coming from a couple of different places. One, it's where we spend money targeting support programs to people who don't need the support. So in other words, when people say, um, you know, and, and the vendors, to be honest, are, are really at the, the root cause of this problem. Vendors say that they have patient support solutions. And you might have even have experienced some, Dan, where, you know, you, you have a health co- coach phone you. I've experienced that through, my, through, you know, my husband's employer, a coach calling me. You know, I'm as fit as a fiddle. I don't need a health coach. And she's, ask, she's asking me, what do I want to change about my health? And I said, nothing. Now, we still spent nine sessions of telecoaching on the line. I did it because I wanted to get some competitive intelligence as to what was contained in the program. Right. My husband was also called now, and offered into a diabetes program. He's not diabetic. And if he were, he would be taking the me- measures himself. That's who are are consuming a lot of resources there that we don't need to spend. Now, on the other hand, these vendors are telling these these large employers, you know, we'll take the top 20% of your employees. Or if if they're brave enough, Dan, they'll say, we'll take the top 40%. But it's the bottom 20% that drive 80% of the cost. Yeah. You know, United Healthcare published some statistics a couple of years ago that the bottom 22% of their patients drive 79% of their cost of care, but yet nobody wants to provide the additional support services to that 20%. And the reason is they say they're, they're beyond behavior change. Well, if you can't change behavior yeah. in the patients who need to make the behavior change, then you shouldn't be in the business of behavior change, period. The behavior change aspect of it is very interesting because, uh, as you kind of alluded to before, there's a piece of behavior that nobody has seemingly been able to figure out to this point. And and going back to something we said ago is if you're prescribed a certain amount of medication that is either preventative or designed to you know, cure you of something, whatever it is, the doctors want you to take it to whatever level that is. Yeah, people don't do that. I mean, I don't know what the the number is, but I I mean, I'm sure that there is a significant amount of people that will take 75% of of a prescribed medication and that other 25% is not used. Or there's the other issue with the prescription itself being more than probably it needed to be in the first place. Yeah, well, the the typical number that's thrown around is 48% of patients are not taking medications as, as prescribed. Now, it, it's, it's up, up as much as 75% in conditions like asthma. And some of the rationale there, Dan, that the, the, the patient is making, for example, with asthma, is 
they have a misconception that it's an acute condition. You treat it when you feel the symptoms and don't treat it when you don't feel the symptoms. Yeah. That's not the right way to manage asthma. Um, you know, another interesting uh, piece of research we did at Mindfield Solutions was, was with ADHD and parents of children aged 6 to 12. Yeah. The biggest factor there was that when parents did not understand that it was a biochemical basis behind ADHD, then they didn't treat beyond six weeks. You know, when they knew that it was biochemical, then they treated with pharmacological medication. And that's a very rational way to think. So what we need to do is we need to find out, does the parent think that it's a behavioral condition or do they, do they understand correctly that it's a biochemical condition? Because if they think it's behavioral, it doesn't make sense to them to go with a biochemical solution. So we need to figure that out. Now, what we have a diagnostic tool in ADHD that with, with one question, we can figure that out. And here's the question, Dan. We ask the parent, how much do you agree with this statement? I can manage my child's behavior through discipline alone. Now, <laughs> if, if, if they say agree, strongly agree, or even if they're neutral on that, we know that they're not going to maintain treatment pharmacologically. And that makes entire sense. So now it makes the solution obvious. The solution is an education to that parent that there is a biochemical disorder. And, and we can understand why parents don't get that because the classic definition of a sick child is a fever, maybe a rash, you know, and vomiting. And there aren't any of those symptoms. So the mother doesn't classify the child as sick. It's a behavioral manifestation of disease. So they take a behavioral interpretation of the disease and therefore they look for the behavioral solution to the problem. So it all makes sense when we get in under the hood right. as to what is actually driving the decision. So how do you how do you start to delve deeper into these behaviors and and, and make the understanding of them at a much greater level, not only amongst the people, but amongst the companies and the, and the members of the, the medical community, whether that be the doctors or the pharma, whatever it might be, so that we're kind of all on the same page here. And a lot of this waste and, you know, can be taken off of the books. Right. Well, you know, where all good research starts, Dan, is, you know, the good old fashioned looking at the literature uh, and, and, and that is old-fashioned now, you know, and I don't mean, you know, you log on and you check a few resources on Wikipedia. I mean, you're getting into the heart of the science of what's going on. You know, I mean, there's a, there's a massive body of literature in health psychology. Psychology I itself is, is explosive, but even if you narrow it down to health psychology, and then you look at cognitive science as well and cognitive analytics, and you can even go deeper into the neuroscience of, of decision-making, you know, and for, for whatever reason, that science has been ignored in, in healthcare. I don't know why it's been so ignored, Dan. It's very frustrating. Now, with my background, I, I have a PhD in cognitive neuroscience. So, yeah. so I, I know that that literature's out there, and, I, and I'm very familiar with it. And I love that literature, and I can see the answers in that literature. So that's where we have to start. And then we have to kind of call through it and test it out. So going back to that ADHD example, I knew, for example, just because of my um, field of expertise, that there's a whole psychology on how does one interpret the understanding of disease? What is somebody's mental concept of sick? 
Mm-hmm. You know, some people say they're sick when they've got a headache and they take a day off work. You know, other folks, and I talk about in, in, in my book about my dad who, God rest him, he passed away a few years ago, never took a sick day in his life. <laughs> why, why do we have those very different concepts of sick? And how does that then challenge us in managing our health behavior? You know, we don't have to reinvent the wheel, but we've got to use the science that's out there. And, and then if we're serious about progressing this as a field of, of interest, then we have to progress the field of science too through further study and application. Our, our research typically culminates in nationwide survey research. So we've, we're taking the theories of behavior from the literature. We're doing concept testing you know, in small groups. And then we, we go out and do large-scale national testing, and we try to falsify. You know, I'm getting into the, a bit of the scientific method here, Dan. Yeah, yeah. But this is another problem in current methods for behavior change. I have not yet met a vendor who has tried to falsify their own work. <laughs> so yet they're comfortable going into a company, a large employer, and charging $8 billion is what companies pay on behavior change programs each year. $8 billion, and that, that number's four years old. It's probably more like 12 to 15 billion wow. now, Dan. And these vendors are not, you know, they're not aiming to falsify. Now, if their genuine concern was to translate the impact into health outcomes, then they ought to be, you know, on the docket to prove that they're having an impact at a health outcomes level. Why are diabetics, you know, why, is, why are we seeing more diabetics, more pre-diabetes? Why is the average HbA1c, which is the marker for diabetes control, why is that getting worse every year, even though we're spending more every year? Well, you know, if these programs seriously work, Dan, we would see a healthier nation. We're getting sicker and sicker every year. Well, I think what you're talking about is is that, that, that meeting between the science and the medicine and the business part of the industry and the control that a lot of times the business part of the industry has, it, it just it, it's able to it, it's able to push down the science and, and, and really kind of cut it off. Exactly, and you know, we what, one thing, and, and maybe I'm going to be a bit provocative here. Please do. We need to stop putting behavior change programs into the remit of marketing. Now, I'm not saying anything that's a disservice to marketing. Marketing has a tremendous role to play in healthcare, but one role that it it doesn't need to be playing is with behavior change. You know, if you had a loved one, Dan, who needed, you know, some good counseling, some good therapy, if they were depressed or if they were going through marriage problems, you wouldn't send them to a marketer. Yeah. That's what we're doing with critical problems that have more consequence on the patient. You know, when diabetic complications go out of control, there's massive consequence with cardiovascular disease, heart attack, the number one reason for for, um, non-traumatic amputations, the number one cause of blindness. These are heavy consequences. What about need a scientific approach behind them? What about what about in the area of psychology as well? Because you you talk a little bit about that in the book. Yeah, I mean, psychology is very generalized. Even within the field of psychology, I think we have to get more specific and bring it into health psychology. And even within there, we have to get more specific into the cognition. You know, at Mindfield Solutions, we have a little mantra. It's just three words. Cognition precedes behavior. 
And what we mean by that, Dan, is you can't start by trying to shift a behavior if you don't know what the reasons for the behavior are. You've got to get to the cognition first. And if you don't understand it, then you're just basically throwing, that, that's where the wastage is. Mm-hmm. You know, what a lot of companies will do is they'll experiment and they'll say, well, let's try you know, a, a text reminder program, or let's try putting an advertisement in, on Super Bowl Sunday, or let's try doing all of these things. So meanwhile, you know, billions of dollars have been spent, and they look at the results and say, you know what, they didn't work. Let's try something else. Now, in science, you know it doesn't work that way. In science, you set up your explanations first, what we call a priori. It's part of the scientific approach. And if you don't have the explanation set a priori, then you have no business spending any money. And what, so what we need to do in, in behavior change, we have to set our hypotheses a priori. Mm-hmm. And these aren't just speculative from a marketing team or a brand team brainstorming. This is not where the hypotheses come from. They've got to come from the literature and tested theories of cognition and tested theories of behavior. Then go ahead and make some statements a priori and try and test them out. Try to falsify them. If you, know, if you can't falsify them, then go ahead and spend some money on a behavior change campaign. How, mu- how much do you think uh, organizations like the FDA uh, play in this whole process uh, of all this money that's being wasted right now? Not enough. You know, well, maybe I shouldn't say not enough. There's, there's not enough scientific control over behavior change programs. Now, I don't right. know whether we want to bring in. That's why I said maybe I shouldn't say not enough. We don't necessarily want the FDA to start controlling, you know, our behavior change, um, you know, programs. Not sure that that's a good idea. But, um, you know, the, 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 the government certainly does put out guidelines for behavior change programs, but they are neither putting in the experimental parameters using the scientific method. They don't have that in their protocols, you know, and I thought, should I kind of challenge that, take that one on as another bastion to, to break through, Dan? But um, I'm, not, I'm not taking that, that fight on, to be yeah. honest. I'm trying to just get the, the general market educated on the, the need for the scientific approach in patient management, which was the whole purpose of, of the book, How Patients Think. It, it's, yeah. it's a tool to, to bring that level of awareness into just the core business of, of healthcare. But I would think that, the, that even doing this book and, 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 and just trying to bring that message to the market, as you said, that's a battle in itself. That, that's probably enough for you to have to handle right now. It is. It's a huge battle, Dan. And I think, you know, it would be easier if people rallied around a common cause. And I think that common cause needs to be health outcomes. You know, a lot of it focuses on the costs of care, but the costs of care will manage themselves, Dan, if we manage outcomes. We all know that it's an awful lot cheaper to manage a diabetic without complications than a diabetic with you know, it, it's twice, twice the cost, and United put out some estimates there, 11,000 versus 21,000. You know, if we can keep the 11,000 diabetics at 11, we're going to be okay. You know, they're now escalating up to 20, and some of them even 35,000 per annum, depending on the scope of the complications. Mm-hmm. If we could just rally around, even the pharmaceutical companies, you know, their typical patient engagement and adherence work focuses on prescription volume, you know, the, the program is, is considered a success 
if prescription volume goes up. Now, we know that there is a, a, a connection between prescription volume and outcomes. If you take your medicines, you'll have better outcomes, and we know that. But the way that we're approaching it, I think even the pharmaceutical companies need to take their eye off of prescription volume and look at health outcomes. So, for example, you know, AstraZeneca is a big player in, in diabetes. When, when plans, health plans are using their products, are the diabetics actually having more controlled glucose? Yes or no? That's a great question. That, that's a great question to ask. I guess also the, the fact that y- you have instances like the case with Martin Shkreli uh, that certainly don't help this whole process as well. What's that? Um, well, um, just with with the fact that you you had a medication that that supposedly was you know designed to help with a with a with a with a problem, and the price gets jacked up you know through the roof, and, and you know certainly there's there's a bigger pro- there's a big problem with consumers just in general feeling like they're getting taken to the to the woodshed on the prices that they're having to pay these days. Yeah, that's true. And I think, you know, that the whole focus on, on, you know, individual business lines like prescription volume, this is part of the problem, right? So go, again, if we can focus on the health outcomes, yeah. there would be no need for, for health care in the United States to cost $3 trillion. $3 trillion per year. Yeah. It's ridiculous, Dan. And rising, and, right? And, and rising. It'll be $5 trillion in the next couple of years. It's too much. So, of course, you know, the, the regular punter on the street is going to bear the brunt of that. Now, even those who are, are, are healthy, you know, we're going to bear the brunt of that, too, because it's, it's a shared cost load, yeah. and it's got to get paid. And the health plans are not going to consume all of that cost. You know, that's just not going to happen. And employers are not going to consume all of that cost. They're pushing more back onto their employees. Now, if we could get that $5 trillion projected number reeled back a bit, then everybody feels the benefit of that. You also have a, another great line, which kind of it wraps up the, the, the conversation, is the fact that what we need right now is to have the right support for the right patients at the right time. Right. A- and seemingly that's not happening enough. No, and every single piece of the, those three rights is a problem right now. I mentioned already about the bottom 20%, the sickest 20% of people yeah. who are driving 80% of the cost. We've got to, you know, hold vendors who say they have solutions. We've got to hold the feet to the fire, basically, and say, okay, well, here's my big problem. Go fix that. And if you can't fix that, then I'm not going to spend $8 billion. You know, get where the problem is. Um, yeah, and we've got to get in early as well. We're, we're, we're waiting too late. There's no reason, for example, why we have to wait until a diabetic is well out of control before we bring in a solution. We don't need to do that. And that's another benefit when we look at the cognitive models. We have mental mind maps. We call them cognitive architectures. Mm-hmm. But they're basically a mental mind map. And somebody has that mind map the day that they're diagnosed. You know, it doesn't just come about when they're, you know, six years through their, their disease and now, you know, costing twenty, thirty thousand. 30000 We can see that the very first day that they're diagnosed. And we can say, okay, while this person may not look like your classic high-risk patient, when we look at their mental state, their mental model, we know that they're going to mismanage. The, this is the right target for intervention. 
Uh, Andrew, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Greatly appreciate your time. It's a very interesting book, and and hopefully you're able to kind of move these discussions forward uh, a lot further in the years to come. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dan. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. The book is How Patients Think, a Science-Based Strategy for Patient Engagement and Population Health. Uh, Dr. Andrea LaFountain joining us on the show. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.